0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today, I'm joined by John Turk, and John is one of the world's greatest living adventurers with an incredible resume of some of the most hardcore expeditions through the Arctic. Today, John shares some stories from a few of his experiences and the path he took many years ago to find his personal power to help fuel his adventures. So enjoy today's episode with John Turk. Hello, John. Welcome to Paddling the Blue today.
1: Hello, John. It's a great honor to be here.
0: I appreciate it. So, John, tell, us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background, both as a paddler and an adventurer.
1: Well, I was trained as an organic chemist. I have a Ph.D. in organic chemistry That was a long time ago, 50 years ago, 1970, 71. And then after I got my PhD, I realized I did not want to be a chemist. I lashed a canoe on top and drove out of town and uh, floated down the Mackenzie and over the Rat River Pass and down into the Yukon and realized this is what I wanted to be. So I embarked on a life of adventure and had to learn how to make a living and all that sort of thing. And so now we go ahead and we jump a whole bunch of years. I was paddling from Japan to Alaska, uh, essentially across the Pacific Ocean in a standard off-the-shelf kayak. It was a two-year journey. And in the middle of the second year, I met this old shaman woman, a healer, a Koryak woman, born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II. Her name was Mulinat, And I ended up, I had been a professional adventurer up until that point in the sense that people sponsored me. And I ended up spending the next five years off and on in that village learning from Mulanot. All of my sponsors dropped me like a hot potato. Uh, They didn't want to hear that I was hanging out in this village and learning about Koryak spirituality. But at the same time, that totally changed my life. That was 20 years ago. And then I resumed cutting edge adventuring, but with a new attitude. And everything I've done since then has been formed by these spiritual journeys I took in Siberia.
0: How did that experience change you?
1: Well, it's subtle and it's everything. (laughs) In a way, nothing happened, and in a way, everything happened. I was healed by the old woman. I had a avalanche injury, and it had been mended surgically, but I had, extreme pain or sometimes I couldn't walk and she in one event she had me strip naked stand on one leg one hand behind my back one hand out in front of me in the shamanic pose of flight and she started chanting and I felt this amazing amount of power in an indescribable way and then by the following day I was healed. Okay, so remember before I told you I was trained as a scientist. How did standing on one leg naked in the crane pose and chanting with the old woman heal me? Well, I don't know, (laughs) and I'm not gonna go there. We're not gonna play that game, but when I spent all of this time, five years off and on in this village, Nobody was a teacher in the sense of, people were telling me things and you could take notes and say, this is what I learned. But what I came out of this five years is that everything, what's important to everybody is your power. And I don't mean your power to lift uh, 350 pounds on a bench press, but your internal power And where does that come from? And it comes from three sources. It comes from the shaman, the spiritual journey, the journey into the other world, the journey into this never-never land of your think-too-much-know-it-all brain. And it also comes from the hunter, the pragmatist, the man or woman who brings home the meat, the person who lives in the tactile world of surviving on this planet. And then the most important thing is the tundra, the earth, mother earth, nature, the wilderness, and our intense commitment are the gift of the wilderness that comes to us and our reliance on that power. Now all of this is very nebulous, but I'll give you an example So many years later, okay, now I'm 65 years old, and I say, if these teachings were really, had meaning, I should find enough power to do something, A, that's never been done before, B, that in my younger years, even when I was 20, 30, 40 years younger, I didn't have the power to do And now I'm 65, I can bring forth this energy and do it. So I attempted to circumnavigate Ellesmere Island, and I ended up with my partner, Eric Boomer. And now we're trapped on the east coast of Ellesmere, and we're trapped by a continent, an ocean of ice, the whole North Pole ice pack is being funneled into a channel between Ellesmere and Greenland that's 12 miles wide. And it's all kinds of mayhem and chunks of ice as big as a football field are flying into the air and exploding in the sunlight and crashing into the cliffs. And if we go out there in a kayak, we're gonna get dead in a hurry. And if we wait on the beach, winter's gonna come and we're gonna freeze to death and we're going to be dead in a hurry. And a friend of mine sends me a text message on the satellite phone and he says, don't think of it as a problem. This is not a problem. You cannot overcome this barrier. You have to assume it doesn't exist. And I thought back to the words of Moulinat and the teachings, your power comes from your spirit, your acceptance of the now, your total acceptance It also comes from the hunter. When we do get to move, I have to use every bit of practical knowledge I have experienced and I have learned in my whole life, and every bit of not just spiritual strength, but human strength. And the other thing is the tundra, the earth. This ocean is not fighting against me. I am not fighting this ocean. We are one. This ocean is a great gift. This is wonderful. This is now. This is what's happening, and whatever happens will be good. So we got through the ice, and it was the greatest physical accomplishment I ever did. And uh, I give total credit to the headspace that Moulinot instilled in me. That was a long answer to your question, John. <laughs>
0: No, that's, that's good. That's good. So I read about your first kayak trip in cold oceans, and, and you certainly don't start small. Can you tell us a little bit about that first kayak trip?
1: Uh, the one around Cape Horn? Yeah. And this, if you want to call me foolish, that's quite all right. I accept. <laughs> I, I accept all of that. I decided that I wanted to be an adventurer. I decided to start off going big. Why I decided that, what was in my headspace, I don't know, I can't tell you, but I decided I wanted to kayak around Cape Horn. And I remember being motivated. I read Joshua Slocum's book about sailing around the world alone. And he was down in Tierra del Fuego, south of the Straits of Magellan and the Yagan Indians were traveling around in these open dugout canoes. And I had always thought of this stretch of ocean, the Southern Ocean, Tierra del Fuego, Cape Horn, as the graveyard of ships. In old English lore, if you went around Cape Horn under sail, you could toast the queen with your feet on the table. And I went, if those people, if those Yagan people not only sailed around these waters in open dugout canoes, but regularly hunted and fished, regularly traveled around with their pregnant women, with their children, with their elders, then this ocean, however ferocious it is, is also something that's amenable to a craft as small as a kayak if we only approach it with the right attitude. And the right amount of patience. And when I look back at it, when you ask me this question now, this was my first opening up to Aboriginal wisdom. This was my first realization that the Western mentality is missing a whole lot about where our power comes from. So I got a hold of this um, uh, fold boat a folding kayak that i could fly down on an airplane with and i jumped in and of course nobody would go with me (laughs) which i took as a compliment i figure if nobody will go with me on a trip then it must have an element that has value so i decided to go solo i committed myself to going so I, I went down and I spent the first twenty nine days alone, not speaking to anybody, no no people, no support. And that was in the days before satellite phones, radios I mean they had radios of course, <laughs> but satellite communication. And so I was totally blocked off, just totally out of communication with the real world, the whole the whole civilized world. There was no rescue at all. And then we got into down in the Beagle Channel where there's some villages and cities, Chilean and Argentinian. And then I went down on towards Cape Horn. And then I made the fatal mistake of being a white man. There was a storm coming in and I was feeling macho and ego. And I had come this far and I was this powerful and I was a hot shot. And uh, that little storm down here off Cape Horn is, I'm not afraid of that. I ain't afraid of no big storms like that. And of course it munched me. And I got basically rolled in the surf. Boat landed on a rock, broke in two. I landed in the surf, dislocated my shoulder. And now I'm swimming one armed in the Antarctic Ocean coming to shore and realizing that I've made a big mistake and the next thing I have to do is try not to become dead. And here you are. And here I am. I didn't become (laughs) dead that day.
0: (laughs) But it certainly didn't damper your enthusiasm for adventure. You uh, you kept going from there and you've got so many incredible experiences to choose from. I'm certain we could probably talk all day um, on those. You had mentioned one earlier and it's actually uh, a book that I'm reading right now, In the Wake of the Jomon. Paddler Magazine called this voyage one of the top 10 all time greatest sea kayak expeditions. So, without spoiling the book, can you tell us a little bit more about that one?
1: Well, yeah, that was. There were two triggers for this adventure. One is to look across the globe and find long sea kayak passages that are sheltered enough that you can do them without dying and fairly remote so that you you need enough villages so that you can procure food along the way if you're going to be out for months and months and months. But you don't want to be fighting Park Service and no camping signs and this sort of thing. You want to be in a remote area. And um, a classic ocean adventure. So there aren't that many coastlines that fit all of those criteria. But one of them is the coastline of northeastern Siberia that goes east to the eastern edge of the eastern world, the eastern edge of Asia. And there is a passage from Japan to Alaska that seemed to me to be quite doable from a technical point of view. So then immediately you start looking up and you say, well, has it been done? And you go, yeah, it has been done. It's been done in the Stone Age 10 or 20,000 years ago by Stone Age mariners who migrated to from Asia to North America. So then I started searching the anthropology of that. And Right about at that time that I was gearing up for this, they found they some, well, was an accidental find of a skeleton on the Columbia River in the state of Washington called the Kinnewick Man. And the preliminary anthropological analysis from the, the anatomy of his crania, this old skeleton, he was 9,600 years old, was that he wa- his origin was a Jomon seafarer from Northern Island of Japan, Hokkaido. And there came this theory that the Jomon, who were seafaring people, had paddled to North America. Now, I'd like to add that everything else I say in this book, I stand by 100%. I'm very proud of the adventure in the book. The anthropology has changed, and North America was probably not first colonized by the Joman people. There's been a lot of DNA work on that, so that aspect of the book is probably incorrect. But everything else I say, I stand by 100%. So in any case, I decided that I would follow these Joman seafarers, from Hokkaido, from Japan to Alaska. And I thought I could do it in a year. We could not do it in a year. It took me two years. And the first part of the journey was up the Kuril Island chain, which in my mind, looking back at it, outside of the Drake Passage between Cape Horn and the Antarctic Peninsula might be the most ferocious piece of ocean in the world. There's tremendous currents, tremendous tidal currents, tremendous standing waves out in the middle of the ocean. You, you go out, and with all this swirling motion of all these different forces in the ocean, you'll have these 20, 30, 40-foot standing waves out in the middle of Nowhereville. No storm, no reason for them to be here, current shears. We got caught in a whirlpool at one point, And we were held for 36 hours in the whirlpool. This is a nasty piece of ocean. It's a beautiful piece of ocean, but it was technically difficult. And I paddled that with Franz Helfenstein and the first year, and we got hammered. We got beat up. We didn't move nearly as fast as we had planned. And so by mid-August, we had gone 1,000 miles of a 3,000-mile journey with Siberian winter coming in, and we'd not not have made the rest of the journey that year. So we flew home, and then France had other obligations. I came back the following year and paddled the remaining 2,000 miles to Alaska with my partner, Misha Petrov. Who had never been in a sea kayak before the start of that journey.
0: So you chose the adventure based on the the science, effectively. So you were following the the path of the the Jomon, is that right?
1: Yeah, we we follow and it's probable that what whatever happened in the Stone Age past ten or twenty thousand years ago, that the people who did come who did migrate to North America, most probably were sailors, not walkers. They did paddle across this ocean. So there are two questions that you you ask when you're out there. One is, how did they do it? And the answer to that question is, how did the Ogden people make a living by hunting and fishing off Cape Horn in open dugouts canoes? by being very respectful of the earth, by honoring the shaman, the hunter, and the tundra, by having a spiritual headspace of power, by having practical skills, and by honoring the earth. And the other question that I deal with in that book, In the Wake of the Jomon, is why did they do it? At the very best, it's one of the most tempestuous oceans in the world. It travels way far north into a frozen land. If you don't make the journey in one year, they didn't have the option of jumping on a jet plane and flying home to their wife and children and then coming back the next year. If they overwintered, they overwintered in the high Arctic. So that latitude of Central Asia where whoever the migrants were, they come from was relatively temperate. There were salmon in the rivers, and deer in the forests and caribou, and it was a comfortable, embracing environment to live in. And why did people migrate into the high Arctic, or across the Arctic? So if you take Anthropology 101, the book will say that because migration is difficult, You leave your home, you leave the environment that you're familiar with, where you know every nook and cranny of the environment and where the caribou chew their cud and what time of year the salmon come up. You have all this knowledge, and that makes life easier. And why would people leave an environment where they have all this knowledge, where they have relatives and and they're, they're doing well, and move to a new place, which is Farther north, colder, more ice, more snow. In the Anthropology 101 textbooks, they say because migration is difficult, people will only migrate for two reasons. One is if they're pushed out of their old environment by warfare or famine, or they're pulled into the new environments because the new environments are easier. Well, the high Arctic is not easier, so that means that they were pushed. So that's what the Anthropology 101 textbooks tell you. But if you start looking closely at the history of migration, certainly in recorded times, you find that you question that. And the Russian anthropologists question that. And they say that there's an innate human curiosity, an innate human spirit of adventure that takes people in a direction that's not pragmatic. Remember again, I come back to this over and over again, the shaman, the hunter, and the tundra. The hunter is the practical person, but the shaman is the spiritual journeyer. And it seems to me that it was the shaman that took our people into the unknown. And if you look at the last recorded migration of the Inuit, and it was recorded by the British seafarers, by the British Navy, in the eastern Arctic. Now, I'm jumping around geographically, but in spirit, I want to think about this. The last of the great Inuit migrations that occurred before the Inuit were in contact with the white men was a journey conducted by a shaman, Kitlock, and he had taken his, he was taking his people on a shamanic journey, not a practical journey. And in my book, In the Wake of the Jomon, we were, at one point, we were paddling along and this huge gray whale, way bigger than our kayak, comes up next to us and rolls over and he's, this whale is less than a paddle stroke away And the whale's eye is looking at me, and I'm looking at the whale. Because primitive people were very, very acute observers of animal behavior, they must have known that gray whales feed close to shore. And the whales would go north in the winter and come back the following spring with calves. So what happened? Why do the whales... Go north in the winter, and how do they survive well enough to come back with calves? So there must be something else going on out there. And I speculated, I'm not saying this is fact, I'm just saying this is the way the human brain works that some person, some healer, some shaman, some visionary became, said that this whale is my spirit animal and I will follow the whale north. Now, I'm not saying this happened. I'm not predicting that it happened. I certainly could not prove that it happened. But what I say in the book is that this is the way humans behave. And something like this must have drawn them into the unknown. Well, the anthropologists jumped on my back, you know, and they said, well, didn't you read your Anthropology 101 text? We said that this doesn't happen but the one thing that I really stand by in my book is that these journeys were largely driven by the shaman, by the spiritual leader, by the spirit of adventure. And once you realize that and you embrace this journey, whatever it is, this human journey that goes beyond the reasonable into, into the occult, into something, the unknown, and that's, the core of humanity, and following behind the core of humanity is a wondrous place to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how do you go about actually research? you mentioned the, um, uh, the Kuril Islands and uh, that passage, and how do you go about actually researching what you're going to be getting yourself into in terms of a paddling environment?
1: Well, <laughs> when nobody's been there before in modern times, <laughs> the research becomes difficult but I did go back into the journals of the old Russian explorers who recorded these passages by the Jomon. The Jomon may or may not have come to North America, but they did paddle the Kuril Islands. And I read one passage that talked about all the incantations and prayers they made when making these passages. And I got the feeling that these were hardened seafarers, and the passages were very, very scary. So why did I go? It was unknown, and everything that I did know was scary. Well, yeah, that's an unanswerable question. I just figured that combination of whatever, whatever, and whatever, and we could pull it off. And we did, but it was a close call. We we got really hammered. At the worst, we were blown out to sea for three nights, four days. And that's a long time to be sitting up. And we were in wind riders, not kayaks. They have pontoons as stabilizers, a trimaran thing. But it's a 16-foot cockpit boat. The cockpit is uh, very similar to the cockpit of a normal sea kayak. 16 feet is the length of most normal sea kayaks so sitting up for three nights paddling and and fighting the weather for four days three nights with no being on shore, that's a rough go so we got hammered
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, i suppose it uh it wouldn't be an adventure if you weren't going into the unknown at least to some degree
1: yeah and When I think of the great moments in my life, hopefully when I'm on my deathbed and going through the wonderful things in my life, not all the bad things. I will remember the second or third night we got in a horrendous storm and it was pitch black and the waves were rearing way over the boat, way over your head. And you look up and it's blackness and as the foam starts to foam and the, the white curl of the top of the wave, all these luminescent algae explode into life and they're sparkling like so many stars, like so many bits of light. And there's sparklingness, is hanging over your head. And you've got your paddle and everything. You're leaning into the wave, and then the wave cascades down on you, and you're just covered in the sparkles. Well, you're also covered in cold salt water. You're shivering. You're hungry. You're thirsty. But the glory of those sparkles and the glory, and that's what kept you alive because you were like, I'm not strong enough to stay awake all night and fight for my life. And then the next wave would come up and it would sparkle at you and we would dance. And you would be so full of the glory and wonder. And your heart would well up with the glory of and wonder of that ocean that it would keep you alive for the next 10 seconds, you see. And then you're home free because you're clear for the next 10 seconds. And then you wait for the next wave and so on and so forth. And that went through the whole night. In Cold
0: Oceans you went to Ellesmere Island, so for kind of a different kind of adventure. Um, you went back in 2011, this time with Eric Boomer, to create a journey that forms the book Crocodiles and Ice. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that story with us?
1: Yeah, when I went to Ellesmere in, a long time ago in Cold Oceans book, uh, 2000 and something, or a long time ago, I went with my wife Chris, and we did... 600 miles in 60 days, 10 miles a day. And that's an ice game. That's a totally different game than something off the Kuril Islands because you're dealing with all the ramifications of ice. And we were following in the journey of Kitlock, whom I had mentioned previously, this shaman. He was also a madman and a murderer. And we were following this ancient... Inuit migration that was recorded by the British naval captains. And at the end of that journey, I thought I was pretty beat up. I thought I had used up all my energy traveling 600 miles in 60 days. And then some years later, I saw uh, Jerry Kablenko put up on his website that the last great undone Arctic adventure is to circumnavigate Ellesmere in a single season and that was 1500 miles over twice what Chris and I had done and your time frame reasonable time frame between winter in and winter out is roughly 100 days so basically I had to go 15 miles a day one and a half times faster than I had traveled when I was a young man for one and a half times longer. And I went, I can't do that. No person could do that. It hasn't been done because it can't be done. And then I started thinking about Moulinat and what she had told me and where the power comes from. And at this time, I was 65 years old and all of the practical, pragmatic data, all of my calculations told me it couldn't be done but I figured I'm losing my power now this is I'm 65 pretty soon if I, I if I'm gonna do it I have to do it and I thought against all logic I thought if you really know where power comes from you can do it and I teamed up with Tyler Bratt, a young man who became a world-class kayaker whom I helped teach kayak when he was uh, six years old. And then Tyler broke his back and I hooked up with Eric Boomer, which was the most amazing, fortunate connection. Uh, Tyler couldn't go because of his back and I went with Boomer. We set out, (laughs) we did it. That's all I can say about that one.
0: (laughs) So what were some of the, the, what would you say the biggest challenges were on that particular trip?
1: We went through many different environments. So when we started out, we started out is cold, reliably below freezing 24 hours a day down to really cold 20 below or something and good solid ice. And then we ended up in rubbly ice and melting ice and meltwater pools. At one point, we were crawling in kind of knee-deep water, meltwater pools, dragging the boats. And we still had uh, somewhere like around 800 miles to go. And when you're crawling over rubbly ice, because that's the fastest way to go, and you're totally soaked in saltwater... There's an element where you say, I better not think this thing through. (laughs) Because, (laughs) you know, we just embrace the crawl. Just do it. And don't, I I talk about your think too much, know-it-all brain. That's the time to shut your think too much, know-it-all brain off and just crawl. And um, something's going to happen. Either you're going to die or you're not going to die. And then things start breaking up. And then we got into that bottleneck I spoke about earlier on the east coast, northeast coast of Ellesmere, where we made 17 miles in 17 days. Our overall average had to be 15 miles a day. That's half a marathon a day, every day, pulling all your own food. We had two food drops, pulling a lot of your own food. But you have to do a half a marathon a day, every day for a hundred days. And you're in heavy boots and pulling gear and got a lot of weight and all that. And so then we got hammered in the, in the Nare Strait where you have this ocean of ice smashing into you and no way through. And you've read all the history books. Greeley got trapped in there for three years. <laughs> by the ice. Well, we didn't have three years to kill and you've got to find a way through the ice and that was a mental game and a physical game. Again, everything, everything you do, I don't care whether it's marriage or you work as a shoe salesman or whatever you do, it's a, it's a balance of that spiritual journey and the pragmatic journey. So we're dealing with this ice that was so powerful, you had to love it. You would sit there for days and watch it and just feel the power and know that it could kill you in an instant. And then there had to be a way through and that's when you pull in your paddle skills, you balance your patience and your daring and your caution and your paddle skills and you made it through. And now it's August and you're running out of energy. You're running out of everything. And it's starting to get cold again. And now we're in, a, in the Northern Ocean and we're sea kayaking. You have storms. I remember crossing Mackinson Inlet. We had a wind against the tide situation and very steep waves. And we're out in the middle and the waves are breaking, it's the same thing again. The waves are breaking and you're bracing into it and you think, can I, can I brace into this wave and stay upright? Um, and you go, yeah, I'm, I'm a good kayaker. Can I brace into every wave for eight hours without a rest and not tip over? And that's different than can I brace into the next wave, but it's the same because you're not bracing into a wave that's going to come in eight hours. You're bracing into this wave. and every wave, you have to wake up and say, I'm as alert as I was in the beginning. And I remember Boomer paddling up to me and saying, are you scared? And I said, I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about it. <laughs> and, and then, of course, we made it through. And then we made it around the point And 104 days after we set out, we got back to Greece Fjord, which completed the circumnavigation and was the only civilian settlement on the island. And the interesting thing here is that after we got back to safety, after we completed the journey, the second night after we were safe, my metabolism shut down, totally shut down and I had to be air evacuated to Ottawa. When we were flying in to Ottawa in the air ambulance, the flight nurse called the tower, actually they called the trauma center at Ottawa General Hospital and read in my vital signs. And the trauma doctor called the tower at Ottawa International Airport and said, hold all international, national, hold all passenger flights, and give this air ambulance priority landing. And I thought, oh, boy, that's real. I'm serious. I'm dying. And I didn't die once again. (laughs) But I pushed my body. It wasn't an injury or an illness. I had pushed my body to the very edge of death. And when I finished and I let off the mental control, the mental imperative, to function to brace into that next wave my body shut itself down the metabolism shut down and when i got to the hospital the guy said you're not a sick man you're a healthy man that needs to be jump-started but the glory of pushing yourself to that edge was again one of those memories that i'll never forget
0: yeah i was going to say your uh, your description of you know crawling through slush and blocks of ice and dragging your boats and then you know the near death piece. Um, as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking, I don't know if that sounds like any fun at all. Um, but <laughs> I hear at the end, you know, the kind of the why you did it, which is the you know, the need to push yourself and that, uh, that that feeling of of what you've really been able to accomplish. So, why why do these trips?
1: Because it's in my DNA. In a way, I'm see- seeking some sort of catharsis if you are a concert oboe player you could seek the same kind of catharsis by playing the oboe i totally respect the concert oboe player and that's an easier way to do it Uh, this just happens to be my way when people ask me that question i tell them i'm not telling anybody recommending i'm not saying you should be an adventurer, but I will say that seeking a passionate way to live is a beautiful life. The question isn't to be like John Turk or be like a concert oboe player or be like John Chase. The question is to look inside yourself and say, where is my propensity for the deepest passion? and then follow that at all costs. And when I say at all costs, I mean it.
0: I find your writing fascinating. Um, I really enjoy how you describe both the trip and the experience of the adventure. um, And the the humor is great as well. Um, But I'm really fascinated how you bring science and history into your stories. So how do you blend your life as a scientist with your life as an adventurer?
1: Well, when I did my science, that was where my passion was and I was very happy being a scientist and my research, highly theoretical research, was so fascinating. I I had instrument time, I was an instrument chemist. I had instrument time from 10 at night to five in the morning and I would stay up all night uh, envisioning these molecules moving through open space and what they were doing and how the electrons were in the molecules and so on. And then one day in the springtime, it was outside of Boulder, Colorado. I was up in an alpine meadow. And I was out walking with my dog. The snow had just melted. Some of the earliest spring wildflowers were up. And my dog started digging holes in the earth and sticking his nose in the holes and smelling the spring earth. And there was so much joy in that dog. I started following what the dog was doing. And I started sticking my nose into the earth and smelling spring happening and smelling the earth coming to a a life again. And then I went, this passion is greater than that other passion. This is too much. I can't not do this. I can't spend my life in a laboratory. So people ask me, how did you change from being a chemist to being an adventurer? It seems like a big jump. and. In a way, if one way to look at it it was a big jump, but the other way to look at it is I was just following my deepest passions. And when when I realized that one passion, that to be connected to the earth, was greater than my thinking passion, I jumped ship. I spent a lot of time in this last book talking about the think-too-much-know-it-all brain, how our logical minds are wonderful. I wouldn't go to the mailbox without my brain. But our logical minds are only one-third of where the power comes from. When I started smelling the earth with my dog, I realized that my whole life, I had skipped the other two-thirds. I had skipped the shamanic journey, the journey into the spirit, whatever you want to call it, and the journey with the earth. And I had only, A third of me, my think-too-much-know-it-all brain. And now, yeah, I still use my think-too-much-know-it-all brain all the time. Like I said, I wouldn't go to the mailbox without it. But it has to be put in the corner. You can't let it get out of control. Your, Your brain really wants to get out of control. And you've got to say, no, sit. Go into the corner and lie down. Put the dunce cap on and be quiet for a little while. Pay attention. Listen up. And you have to tell your brain that all the time. And when you do that, you become connected to these other aspects of your life. And I believe that that becomes a much happier life. And so when I grew up, I, my mother never taught me about the shame in the hunter and the tundra. My mother never taught me that there was value to smelling the spring earth. My mother taught me that if I thought a lot and I behaved and I learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, then I would become rich. You see, and then I would have lots of stuff. But, and that's another thing in my newest book. I did a lot of anthropological research, and the interesting overriding factor of early Paleolithic Stone Age survival is that our big brain and our survival came before sophisticated tools and weaponry. Song, dance, ceremony, togetherness, cooperation. Those were the elements that gave primitive Stone Age people, weaker than a lion, smaller claws than a tiger, can't smell as well as a hyena, fast slower than a jaguar. How did we survive? not through sophisticated tools and weaponry because we survived for five million years before we developed sophisticated tools and weaponry. It was the shaman and the tundra, our connectivity to the earth that gave us survival. So we're back to this question you asked before, why did I change from being a scientist to being an adventurer because the scientist left out two-thirds of my humanity.
0: So you mentioned you have another book coming out, uh, September 21, Tracking Lions, Myth, and Wilderness in Samburu. And uh, and this is quite different from your polar region paddling. So why was this one important to you?
1: Yeah, this book, all of my other books were about paddling. This book was placed in the desert in northeastern Kenya. It was during a drought. There wasn't a bit of water anywhere, nowhere to paddle no water, but it's a continuation of this lifelong quest into what we've just been talking about. So in the opening scene, I am tracking a lion, and I'm carrying a wooden club, a rungu, a stick, and the lead tracker, my companion, the only other person on this mission is Deepa, and he has no weapons at all, and from a, a number of, pieces of evidence we collect along the way. We are very close to this lion. At first, I get angry. I get angry at the camp manager. I get angry at Deepa. What are we doing out here? If this lion should charge out of the bushes, all I have is a club. I'm gonna bop a charging lion over the head with a club and come out alive? I mean, why didn't they even give me a machete? What well, what's going on here? And then I collect myself because I know from all my life of ad- of adventure that anger is absolutely the counterproductive emotion. This, if anything will kill me, it's being angry at my situation. So take a deep breath, breathe out the di- from the diaphragm, calm yourself, and enter a land of wonder, that this is a wondrous place to be. And... What can come out of this is that I can come to an understanding of how our Stone Age ancestors survived. We're real close to the Olduvai Gorge where humanity evolved, where the first Homo sapiens arose. And I can look into, I am in their headspace because I am in these bushes with that lion out there with their weaponry. I am them, and I can look at them, and I can see where the power comes from. And that was the genesis of, of this book, which as you see from this discussion we've been having, was a continuation, of been something I've been toying with for 20 years. But then something else happens, you see. Before too long, there are people out there in the Savannah with guns and machetes who want to kidnap me and cut off my head, you know? And now I'm in the savanna with some uh, Marani, some Marani, some Samburu warriors, and we're on patrol. And there are people out there with guns who will kill us. And I've just spent the first half of the book saying, how did we gain our power through love and compassion and cooperation And then I go, but these people who want to shoot me or cut off my head and post a video of it up on Facebook, they don't have love and cooperation and compassion. And how did we lose that love and cooperation and compassion that gave us our power to survive and turning it into all this warfare? And then that becomes the big question of the book it's a question I say in the preface, this is my last book, it's maybe too big a question to ask, but it has to be asked. And we have to understand it on a, some sort of a visceral level to be able to move forward humanity in a sustainable way on into the 21st century. Well,
0: we'll watch for that book coming out here uh, here pretty soon. We're recording this in the, the summer of 2021, so September 3rd, 2021. Uh, so you mentioned The Land of Wonder, and I'm going to just encourage our listeners, pick up one of your books, learn about amazing, wonderful paddling adventures you've had as well, um, and then certainly check this one out, The Tracking Lions, Myth and Wilderness in samboro John, how can listeners reach you and learn more?
1: I have a website, www.johnturk.net, and that's J-O-N-T-U-R-K.net, and that's a good place to start. It gives a a review of my books and my philosophy and so on, and on the contact page, there's a way to send me an email, and right now I answer every single email that gets sent, and if you want to talk and open up a dialogue, I'm here to listen.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, John. I know that's uh, one of the ways that I reached out to you as well. So I appreciate you connecting with me and I appreciate you answering that email. So we can have this conversation and uh, learn about you and learn about um, your spirituality and how that's affected you and how that's helped you find your power and help fuel your expedition uh, life here as well. So John, I've got one final question for you. And it's a question that we ask all of our guests for the show. And that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue?
1: Well, I would definitely contact Eric Boomer, my partner on Ellesmere. Uh, Eric is Eric and his partner, Sarah McNair-Laundry, both exceptional adventurers. And Eric is carrying the torch. He is taking the adventure world into new heights, basically physically. He's paddled things that I could never, ever, ever, ever think of paddling. And he has a an attitude of fun out there <laughs> that the old style adventures didn't have. And to take this world into the highest level of technical expertise and combine it with the highest level of fun, I think you should have Eric and Sarah both of them on together and they'll make you laugh they'll make you cry and they'll inspire you to go out there and do the highest level of expeditioning with the biggest smile you've ever had on your face all right well i will uh
0: we'll connect with you offline here get uh, eric and sarah's contact information and uh, make the connection there as well john it's been fascinating talking to you today and i get like i said learning about how you've found your power, and that's helped you fuel your adventures um, throughout your life. And again, I encourage all of our listeners, uh, go to your website, johnturk.net. We'll have links to that in the show notes here, so people can follow up and uh, and learn more about you, learn more about the adventures, and, and check out the books as well. So, John, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today.
1: Well, thanks, John. You had excellent questions. I had fun in this conversation. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, Use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds. And who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Now that you have a little more insight into what keeps John Turk ticking and you've gotten a, a little taste for his adventures, I encourage you to dig deeper into his stories. His stories really are a blend of adventure history, relationships, and humor, and they're just a lot of fun to read. I recently read Cold Oceans, as I was saying near, during the interview, and uh, right now I'm in the middle of In the Wake of the Joman. As he mentioned, his newest book is coming out in September 2021, and that is titled Tracking Lion's Myth and Wilderness in Samburu. In our next episode, I'll be talking with Dale Williams, and we're going to talk about some pretty hairy waters in Alaska's Aleutian Island chain. As always, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.